Welcome to Talking History with Farnham U3A History Group. Our speaker is Richard Thomas, who is talking about the Boer War and other colonial adventures. Part B. Now along comes Roberts, Field Marshal Lord Roberts. Buller was technically um, relieved of his command as commander-in-chief because he'd made a bit of a dog's breakfast. But in fact, the more you think about it, the more you read it, you realise he was, he was slightly unlucky. He didn't have the right equipment at the outset. Anyway, Roberts arrived in January 1900, signalling the start of Phase 2. He was a vastly experienced soldier who'd fought in India, Afghanistan, etc., etc. He was a much more formidable and ferocious beast than Buller. In fact, the more you learn about him, the more you like Buller. He also benefited from the arrival of massive reinforcement and other experienced generals like Kitchener. 180,000 men were sent to South Africa, the largest British force ever sent overseas up to that time. So Roberts left Ladysmith to Buller, we've just done that, and then himself concentrated on Kimberley and then Mafeking. Now, Kimberley was the first to be lifted. It was the easiest to get to and the smallest, in a way. It was on the line of the rail from Cape Town and on the border between Cape Province and Orange Free State. It was not militarily significant, but it did contain the diamond mines. It also contained Cecil Rhodes and others. And the siege started as soon as the war <coughs> was declared. 7,000 Boers laid siege, basically attempted to starve the inhabitants into submission. But the 40,000 inhabitants were well stocked with provisions. But it is reported that the champagne which Rhodes and his colleagues at the club favoured had almost run out by the time they were relieved. But it was not easy. In December, a 14,000-strong army group tried to relieve Kimberley was pinned down by accurate small-arms fire at Magusfontein by a large Boer group led by Pete Cronier. And after nine hours under fire and without water or intense heat, British troops, I'm afraid there is no other way for it, ran away. But when Roberts arrived with his reinforcements, he also met resistance. He ordered a cavalry charge by General French, uh, and this split the Boer defences, and after a 124-day siege, he entered Kimberley, February the 15th, 1900. Roberts then chased Piet Cronier across the Modder River, another splendid victory in which he took 4,000 prisoners, including their general, who's Piet Cronier. Unfortunately, they raced ahead of their supplies of medicine and water, and so the drew troops drank from the polluted Modder River. And as a result, many more died from typhoid than died in the battle. So the Boers were good at trenches, and we apparently weren't. We didn't bother to dig them. We, were so, we didn't bother to hide. We kept on marching into the very accurate gunfire. Now, this relief of Mafeking was a bit of a sideshow, but it has entered folklore mainly thanks to the fact that four London newspapers had correspondence in Mafeking at the time from London. And they certainly, this made the reputation of Baden-Powell, who was the commander of the defence force. Now, Baden-Powell had, had indeed thoughtfully prepared his regular troops and local volunteers for attacks down the line, but when uh, 6,000 Boers arrived, it was a siege, but he, he'd, he'd made some preparation. And the strategy, again, was to starve the town into submission. The siege lasted for 217 days, which was much longer than the others, during phase two of the war. And the hysterical relief which greeted the lifting of the siege when the news got to London actually gives some idea of how badly things were going. The performance at Covent Garden was interrupted to give the news, and the audience burst into song. I assume they burst into God Save the Queen. Song. 
Now, Baden-Powell does deserve great credit for his management of the situation, but the situation shouldn't have arisen in the first place. So the arrival of Roberts with reinforcement, much more aggressive intent, a willingness to take massive casualties, meant that the war was going to change. After the relieving Kimberley, one army group marched on to Mafeking, and the other group, led by Roberts himself, advanced on Bloemfontein, Johannesburg, and Pretoria. Roberts captured Bloemfontein in March, uh, but the main Boer defenders didn't surrender or fight. They just disappeared into the bush, into the veld. So in May 1900, the Orange Free Strait was formally annexed as a British colony. So again, the same map as before. There's Orange Free Strait, and thereabouts is Bloemfontein, and that's Transvaal, and thereabouts is Pretoria. So it was all over, only it wasn't. Roberts waited in Bloemfontein while his army waited for their medical and supplies to catch up with them and to deal with another outbreak of typhoid. Now, Robert's ruthlessness meant that he was perfectly willing to ignore the welfare of his own troops, which is not something Buller would have done. And the, the, the collapse of the supply systems was Robert's fault, not his quartermasters, not the medics. But after a few weeks of rest and recovery, Robert's advanced on Johannesburg and Pretoria. There were some skirmishes, but no real battles. Rather like the Wild West of the Indians up in the hills shooting down of the cavalry marching through the valley. It was that sort of thing. Not real battles at all. Pretoria in particular was taken without a battle on June the 5th, 1900. The Boer fighters moved out as the British moved in. So this made everybody, the journalists, the politicians in London, the, the officers there, think the war was essentially over bar some mopping up. But, and then Transvaal was annexed in October 1900, that's now only a year from the beginning of the war. One-year war, British victory, great stuff. However, the point is, uh, the Boers didn't know they'd lost. Kruger did leave the country, and that was even bigger sign that it was all over. Kruger, Kruger left for the Netherlands. Uh, but all the Boer commanders, except Cronje, who was a prisoner of war on St. Helena, had escaped, and they'd all survived to fight another day. So, we get to the third phase of the war, which was in fact the longest, and the one with which we're probably the most familiar. Almost no um, pitched battles, and it's, um, but lots of raids and skirmishes and engagements, but very hard to discern who was winning. They'd win there, or they'd burn down that, or they'd do that, but what was happening? It was basically the British were mopping up, and the Boers refused to be mopped up. But having taken over these places, the British were in charge of the cities, and, and the main thing they had had to do was to get the Boers to accept that they had lost, which they were very reluctant to do. The British had a lot of prisoners of war. Some were put on ships, and some were parked along the coast, some were held in makeshift prisoner of war camps, some were sent overseas. 25,000 prisoners of war were sent overseas, including 5,000 to Ceylon, about 5,000 to St. Helena, including Cronje. But the, the, the simple reason why the mopping up wasn't going to be easy. The British controlled all the main towns, yes, but the Boers controlled the countryside, which was their natural habitat. When the British left a dorp, a small town, to clear out another small town, the commanders would come down from the hills and re-equip themselves and sort of visit their families, have a good night's sleep, change of clothes, and off they go into the hills again. Even though the British had a total altogether, local West African, Indian, etc., 250,000 troops, it was still not enough for continuous and effective cover of the whole country. It's a very big country. One of the things the British decided to do, under the now the control of Kitchener, Roberts was there for a year, won the main battles, disappeared to, to glory back to London. Kitchener was the local commander, and he increased the uh, coverage of the country, the control, 
by establishing blockhouses. These were lines of fortified things. That's a rebuilt one, obviously, but they were like that, each with eight to ten soldiers around the key towns, along the railway lines, and connecting key supply routes. Eight thousand blockhouses were built at about a thousand pounds each. If you work that out today, that will end up as serious money. Many of these were linked by barbed wire, the, the key ones, and the system did appear to work because no major bridge or no major supply camp that had a blockhouse to protect it was blown up or captured during the rest of the war. So having secured their own supply routes, the British decided to try and deny resources to the Boers, and here's where it gets nasty. This led to the infamous scorched earth policy, which meant not only burning down houses and crops, but also poisoning wells and salting the farmlands, which made it unusable for a generation. The families driven off were often housed in what is called now, we know where called, concentration camps. So burning down and getting rid of the Boer families, because their men were up in the hills, was British policy. But it finally got serious. They were going to defeat the Boers, and the gloves were off. There were a lot of British Commonwealth troops, up to 250,000, with perhaps 30,000 commandos. They had no chance of victory. And had they been sensible, they would have negotiated. But that was not the Boer way. Never was, never will be, I don't think. What is not quite so well known uh, as this, the scorched earth burning the, the camps and so on, is how many black Africans were involved in the struggle. Perhaps 16,000 of them, half the number of the total Boer army, were used to help to man the blockhouses and uh, lots more helped with the removal of the Boer families. So this was not going to help post-war race relations very much. The British also used Boer auxiliaries who served as scouts. There were 30,000 Boer men at one stage fighting against the British and about five or 6,000 collaborators fighting with, certainly helping, the British. Now, I'm, I'm starting to seem a bit sympathetic towards the Boers. You have, <laughs> you have to... Well, you have to admire their stubbornness. But it must be emphasized they were fighting essentially to deny the vote and rights to non-Boer residents of their two states and to keep the black population in conditions of virtual slavery. Uh, one British army officer came across a village in August 1901 who was from, say, from Br the Indian army. The war is fast degenerating. The Boer is becoming just as cold-blooded a ruffian as the dacoit was. And its wholesale slaughter of Kaffirs has, I think, forfeited his right to be considered a belligerent. I found the bodies of four Kaffir boys, none of them over the age of 12, with their heads <coughs> broken in by the Boers and left in the kraal. Strong measures will be required to stop this slaughter. In 1901, January, the whole civilian population of Modersfontein was wiped out by the Boers. In, later on, in Lelyfontein, a commando group under Manny Maritz killed 35 Africans at a mission station. Even Dennis Reitz, a senior Boer commander, said it was ruthless and unjustifiable. Even Smuts was displeased. But rather than negotiate, the Boers continued to harass the British. The casualties became heavier and heavier on both sides, but Roberts and Kitchener didn't really care. The Boers cared more and became increasingly obvious that they were going to be outmaneuvered because they were outnumbered as well. One of the senior uh, Boer commanders was Smuts. Uh, he continued to believe that the Afrikaner population within the Cape province, and Cape Midlands particularly, would be so revolted by the concentration camps and the farm burnings that they would rise up against the British, but they did not. Now, it doesn't mean there was no unpleasantness in Cape province. Some captured commanders were hanged for treason, 
sometimes in public, to act as a warning to others. Others were hanged for murdering prisoners and killing unarmed, usually black, civilians. It's just about possible to argue that this tough justice was even-handed. Breaker Morant, who was an Australian soldier fighting for the British, killed a Boer prisoner, and he too was hanged. Now, the concentration camp story is, is, the, is the, the, the really depressing one. The thing about the concentration camps is that, militarily speaking, they worked. It cut the commanders off from the sources of supply and certainly lowered their ability to respond. It was, of course, a humanitarian disaster for the Boers and for many Africans, and a PR disaster for the British. Now, the statistics come out of this are politically motivated, so it's very hard to find out really accurate figures. Whatever source you look at, there are different figures. But there were about 45 mostly tented camps for Boer families and 65 for Africans. Sometimes there were concentration camps, sometimes there were refugee camps. 28,000 people thereabouts uh, died in these camps. That was about a quarter of those interned. Now, this is not because women and children were targeted, but because they were the main residents of the camps which had no hygiene or sanitation, and they were susceptible to measles, typhoid, and dysentery, and they died in their thousands. Then, but back in the London, the mood was changing. Why hasn't this easy, quick victory been consolidated? Why is it still going on? Why are our boys still doing these things? Why are we getting these stories about concentration camps and the scorched earth policy? Emily Hobhouse, who was very well connected, started to stir things up. A review team arrived from London, led by the Fawcett Commission, and they did not gloss over the problem. They used words like catastrophe and noted that the very high death rates for Boer and blacks was caused by poor hygiene. Joseph Chamberlain, the colonial secretary, ordered Milner, the high commissioner, to make changes and put the civilian government rather than the military in charge. Conditions immediately improved, so why hadn't they done it earlier? and the death rates dropped sharply. This was late 1901. The damage had been done, and thousands of lives had been lost, and the, and the reputation of the British Army had been undermined both in the UK and in the Western world. It was not targeted at them because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a doctor in an army hospital in 1900, pointed out that British soldiers suffered just as much from British military incompetence. He complained bitterly about conditions in his ill-equipped field hospital. During the war, 14,000 soldiers at least died of disease and 8,000 at most in combat. The Boer figures were worse. 7,000 Boer soldiers died in combat or thereabouts and 25 to 30,000 civilians died of disease or the concentration camps. It's true the survival of the prisoners was not high on Kitchener's list of priorities, but nor either was the welfare of the British soldier. I agree also these total figures don't add up to lunchtime on the first day of the Somme, but that was before industrial killing became um, normal. Kitchener did not care. He wanted to win the war, and the damage that was done on the British then and even now, he was not really bothered about. But gradually, resistance was reduced and negotiations for peace began. Uh, one policy the British started to spread about the idea was to arm the black soldiers. Now, this, they fought bravely for the British and as guides and a few of them as guards. But the idea of arming the general black population really scared the Boers and certainly increased their willingness to negotiate. So, by mid-1902, the war was coming a messy conclusion. Before we get there, two miscellaneous bits of information. You will, any of you have seen the film War Horse? 
it was about the First World War, but this, the way horses were treated, they were key uh, bits of equipment in the wars, all these wars, particularly the Boer War and the First World War. Thousands were shipped out from the UK and Commonwealth countries. Few were given time to acclimatize or to adapt to the local food. Horse, their, their natural hostlers and mule drivers, etc., did not come with them. So horse management was not undertaken by experienced staff. Many horses died <coughs> on the high belt. The air is thinner. They were being ridden over long distances with very heavy, unnecessarily heavy saddles. At the relief of Kimberley, it was estimated that 600 horses died in one day. And it is also estimated that 300,000 horses died in the conflict. An extraordinary number. And there's a memorial in Port Elizabeth, which I've seen. It's a rather touching memorial in Port Elizabeth on the coast of South Africa. And the ordinary soldier was also brave. Nobody questioned the bravery and determination of the soldiers, and, as I've said, the bravery and determination of the Boers, beyond common sense, really. So there were some very unpleasant close combat engagements, like Spion Kop. The number of VCs granted was relatively high for what was essentially a colonial war. Seventy-eight VCs were granted in all. Now, those of you that are cynical, possibly, one or two, might think there were more, more were given in the Boer War to cover up the fact that uh, the concentration camps and uh, it was the British PR disaster was slightly alleviated by awarding lots of VCs. Nobody is suggesting these VCs weren't hard-earned by the recipients, but it was, that was what hit the headline in the papers rather than more and more about the concentration camps. So, at the end of the war, the, uh, the peace was arguably quite a generous one. The Boer position was never tenable, really, uh, when the British decided, however incompetently, to enforce their rule. Only the extremely unlikely intervention of the Germans would have made a difference. But even the Kaiser could see that Germany was not powerful enough to take on the British yet. Uh, the peace treaty at Brunigan um, was signed after lengthy negotiations, the same terms they'd offered in 1901 when they'd lifted the sieges. So they had, if you like, 18 months of quotes, unnecessary war. They ran out of energy, supplies, and fighters. Then they began to discuss peace. Signed in May 1902, settlement was signed by Milner and Kitchener and the acting presidents of Transvaal, including Schalk Berger, which if you follow rugby, that's the name to conjure with, uh, and the Orange Free State. The Boers agreed to stop fighting and give up their arms except for their registered private guns. Again, being farmers, they needed a gun, but, and they're allowed to keep them. There will be a general, general amnesty, and both the Transvaal and the Orange Free State will be allowed to keep Dutch law and language, which it still does. They would soon to be given internal independence and large sums of money for reconstruction, which they were given, and it was managed by Milner, which is to his credit. Funds to help black areas were also promised, but they were not actually delivered. So if you look at the costs of the war, the, the eagle-eyed might say those aren't quite the same figures I had earlier, but these are the summary figures. British losses, mostly to typhoid and poison water. Boer losses, as a percentage of the whole, an extraordinary, extraordinary number of 7,000 fighters out of 30,000 maximum. African losses, lots in battles and in camps, and, and underestimated. They would die in villages of starvation or wounds or not get being treated for something. So, but the big cost if you like, was the British reputation, Boer infrastructure, and African hopes for civil rights. These were the real costs of the war. But as so often happens, the medium-term result was one which could have occurred by negotiation without a war. 
By 1907, Transvaal of the Orange Free State was self-governing, and they were led by former Boer commanders. The Union of South Africa was formed in 1910 with the main provinces, Cape Colony, Natal, Transvaal, and Orange Free State, all inside it. Who was the first premier of the Union of South Africa? Louis Botha, ex-Boer general. Who was the second prime minister of the Union of South Africa? Jan Smuts, a major Boer commander. Who was the third prime minister of the Union? Barry Herzog, a signatory, is one of the people in that picture, a signatory of the surrender document. And that's what I mean by winning the peace. Uh, we, we won the war, but we certainly lost the peace. Now, as a small legal footnote, these three, both as much Herzog plus Piet Cronje, who was temporarily in St. Helena, were born in Cape Province and thus were British subjects. They could therefore have been charged with treason and quite legally hanged at the end of the war. But if they had been hanged, Smuts would not have been able to join Churchill's war cabinet in World War II. So, post-war, South Africa developed rapidly, gold production came back, it stayed a member of the Commonwealth, gold production got higher and higher, and you would ask yourself, what was it all for? And some post-war development. I think the, it's important to recognize that this was a prelude to the First World War. It was clear to everybody, including Kitchener, who was pretty ferocious, probably a good tactician, the British Army needed significant restructuring, retraining, and re-equipping. The Navy was building dreadnoughts and the, the biggest in the world, blah, blah, but the Army was a mess. It showed the Germans that if a few Boer farmers could hold back the might of the British Empire for two years, they might be able to do the same with a slightly better outcome in Europe. Roll on 1914. The sensible determination to end the war without punishing the Boers further had the effect of helping to ensure South Africa was on the British side, more or less, in World Wars I and II. But the positive treatment of the Boers led to breaking promises made to the black population, who did fight alongside the British. And in Cape Province were given rights that, that, that they were not able to have in Orange Free State. They were given no compensation and no additional rights. They were the real losers of the Boer War. And perhaps even more importantly, the bitterness engendered by the third phase of the war and the thousands of deaths of women and children, uh, as they ca caused by malnutrition rather than brutality, meant that many ordinary Boers were very wary of the British and allowed the development of things like the uh, Brodebond and other extreme Boer groups. And this created conditions, I think you can say there's a direct line between this and the later victory of the nationalists and the introduction of the apartheid system. And they're the key players in the Boer War. This has been a complicated and not very uplifting story. A few more exciting wars after the coffee break should cheer us up a bit. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, let's, have a, let's have a break. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is published by the Mr. T Podcast Studio.